We're in this series right now called Fake News. Um, it's been fun. We started it last week. And it's the idea that there are things floating around about Christianity, about God, about the Bible that we want to address and say, that's not fake. There is something real in this. And this last week, as I was doing some study, I didn't just happen to be reading this. This isn't a place that I go for fun to read. But I found this place called the IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions. Yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't go there very often. But this is what they did. They, they made a summary, um, and they put this out, of ways to help you understand if there's fake news, if something isn't real. So they walked down this list. I want to show you a couple of these. Um, they said, first, consider the source. We have to understand the source of what you're reading, the mission and the purpose behind that. What, who is it that you're reading? Is the source a good source? Read beyond the headlines. Don't just read the headlines. You've got to read the whole story if you want to understand what's going on with that. Read beyond the headlines. Check the authors. Are the people that are writing, are they credible? Do they have some credible resources behind them, or are they just somebody that decided to start today to start writing? Um, assess the supporting resources. Are there other people making claims about it as well? Um, check the, publica- the date of the publication. Not just how old it is, it might be really old, but yet was it written around the same time of the source? Um, ask, is, is this a joke? Is this satire or not? Is this supposed to be funny? What about your own biases? Are you stepping into it with judgment already? Do you have blinders on or can you read with an open mind? And ask the experts. Get to know some other people. Or are other people writing about this and what are they saying about it as well? You know, as I read through this, it's not just good for news. This is good for biblical interpretation. I Copy this and think about this as you're reading Scripture. Is this stuff fit? Because how you read Scripture is very important. What we do with the Word of God is very important. And we have to know, are we trusting it? Is it true for us? Is it fake news? Or are we using it just for our own purposes? So um, before I jump in, I want to show you this video. Some of you might watch this TV show, The Young Sheldon. Um, this, it's a spinoff from The Big Bang Theory. And I want to show you a clip from that before we go any further. Watch this. see that. I don't see nothing. That's obstruction of justice as well as disgusting. Oh, relax. By passing the test, I get to play football and you get to go to the train store. Everybody wins. But what about the truth? What about it? It's supposed to set us free. Who told you that? The Bible. Since when do you care about what's in the Bible? When it helps me win an argument. (laughs) Since when do you care about what's written in the Bible, right? As long as it helps you win an argument, maybe then it's a good source of information for you. Or maybe because it's true, 
And we need to be reading it all the time for the truth in our lives. So um, Josh McDowell, I'm going to read a lot of quotes to you this morning on this. I love this. Josh McDowell, he said, Only God could have created a book with such iniquity, which has been transmitted accurately from the time it was originally written. It is correct when it deals with historical people and events. It contains no scientific absurdity, and it remains true and relevant to all people of all time. This book is amazing. Uh, This book is a remarkable book, but it's not just one book. It's actually 66 books brought into one. There is 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament that bring this book together. It was written in three different languages originally, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek. It was written across three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it was written in a time span of like 1,500 years, 60 different generations, written by 40 authors. Most of the authors didn't know each other or even live in the same era as each other. But yet, the amazing thing about this book is that it has one consistent theme, one theme throughout the whole book, and that's Jesus. Jesus is coming. That's the theme of the Old Testament. Jesus is coming. The theme of the Gospels, is Jesus is here. And then the theme for the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is coming back. The same theme all throughout. I promise you, you take 40 of my friends. Okay, if you could find 40 people that would call me a friend, all right? Get get to that first. Take 40 of my friends and ask them to write about my life. I promise you, it wouldn't It wouldn't coincide like this does. It wouldn't work. There might be some themes throughout that you might be able to catch some here and there. But this is a masterpiece that's amazing in what it teaches us about Christ. Bruce Wilkinson, a theologian, he said, The Bible is the greatest work of literature, history, and theology ever written. It is a unity out of diversity of authors, time spans, and literary forms. In these 66 books, we discover our past, we understand our present, and we attain hope for our future. It is so important to you in your current life and your faith right now, but it is also so important to you in your eternity and where you're going to spend eternity. So we need to know why it is that we believe what it is that we believe. And rest assured that it is the truth. So I'm going to give you six different reasons why we use the Bible as a foundation for our teaching. Now, I know that's a lot for me. Usually we walk out of here with one main idea. But I got, I got six different reasons why we believe in this foundation. If you have your bulletins, you can turn to the back side of that. And you can fill in the blanks with those. I'd encourage you to do that as we walk through this. So here's the first one. The Bible is courageous. The Bible is courageous. It makes some incredible claims. You know, 400 times in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, 400 times it says, thus saith the Lord. Or depending on what version you're reading, the Lord said. But in 1400 BC, in ancient Israel, if you were writing on behalf of God, and you said, God said, and your claims didn't come true, you were killed. That was the death penalty. If you made that kind of a statement and it didn't happen, they would just kill you. Um, David Faust, who was the president at Cincinnati Bible College for a while, he said, to say, thus saith the Lord, was a bold claim. It was putting your life on the line. The Bible does not contain the frivolous sayings of people that just love to hear themselves talk. They spoke on behalf of God, and after all, they had to. There was no written record to go by. God was unfolding his will and his word through the presence, through the experiences, sorry, that they were facing. So there weren't just a lot of people walking around claiming to speak on behalf of God. 
But yet in the New Testament, in Thessalonians, the first book of Thessalonians, when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says, when we receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you actually expected it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work within you who believe. The Bible, it makes some claims that are hard to believe, and you have to have faith in order to trust in it and believe it. Here's the cool part about the Bible, though. Those amazing claims that it makes, it backs them up. I love this statistic. Um, I've used this one before. Peter Stoner, he's a mathematician from Pasadena, and he did this study many years ago. He wanted to study the probability of someone accidentally coming along and fulfilling the prophecies of Jesus. So he took the prophecies of Jesus, the the prophecies from the Old Testament that said this is what was going to happen, and to see what what are the odds of that actually happening, of someone actually fulfilling those prophecies that were made about Jesus. So what would it take? What would be the odds of someone actually being betrayed by a friend of theirs for 30 pieces of silver? What would be the odds of someone going through a trial like Jesus and being crucified like him? Here's the, here's the catchy part on this. He only took eight of the prophecies. Just eight of the prophecies. And the odds were one in ten to the 157th power. It looks something like this. That's the one with 157 zeros behind it. The crazy part is, that was only eight of the prophecies. There's actually over 300 prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament that he fulfilled So somebody um, had this big idea and thought, it it might look like this. If we were to take the state of Texas, the state of Texas, and to fill it up with silver dollar coins um, an inch deep, and then take one of those coins and put a red X on it and toss it out in the middle somewhere, in the middle of Texas, and then you were to fly over the state of Texas and jump out of an airplane, hopefully with a parachute on, right? And you were to, to fall down in the middle of this, reach down and the very first coin you pick up is the one with the red X on it. Those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling all of those. And yet he actually did. It's a courageous book. But we also know this. It's also a historical book. We should read it also as a history book. We know that archaeologists, when they um, dig, they walk around with a shovel in one hand and a Bible in the other. Because they trust in the accuracy of the history that it teaches. And for years it bothered people. There were many people that it bothered that archaeologists could not find the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They searched all over for it. They said that it disproved the Bible, that the Bible was false because they couldn't find this place. Well, if you know much about the Bible and the Old Testament, you know why the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is nowhere to be found. Because it's ashes. It was burnt to the ground by fire and brimstone, completely gone. But in 1964 to 1978, there there was a group of people that found some clay tablets, 1,700 clay tablets that they discovered from back in that day. And there were all kinds of things on it. There was some scripture that was written out. There were some recipes that were written on these things. There was also some receipts, deliveries, that were made to a place called Sodom and gave us proof that there really was. You see, over and over and over again, there are discoveries that prove the historical accuracies of Scripture. 
Dr. John McRae, he wrote, archaeology has not produced anything that is unequivocally a contradiction to the Bible. On the contrary, we have seen that there have been many opinions of skeptical scholars that have been codified into fact over the years, but that archaeology has been shown to be completely wrong. I want to read something to you. I'm going to struggle through it on a couple of the words, but maybe you'll find yourself in my own shoes with this and wonder um, that you've thought the same thing. So I want to read to you Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, in verse 1, this is what Luke writes. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and um, Trichianitus and Lysianus, I think, um, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, I know many of you, and if you're like me, you get to some parts of Scripture and you're like, I can't even pronounce these words. How am I supposed to keep reading? I don't understand what's going on. So you stumble through and sometimes you give up. Sometimes you just keep reading and you make stuff up. But you have to ask the question, why? Why did Luke write this? Why did he write it this way? Why did he put all those names in there? Well, you see, back then they didn't have calendars like we have today. They didn't have a way of marking specific days. So... The only way to tell when something happened was to mark history by saying who was in leadership, who was leading at the time. And I see this as Luke going to a great effort to pin a date and a time of his writings, and he's really begging us to come check out his accuracy. Come on, check me out. What I'm writing is true, and this is when it happened making sure that he wrote it just right so that we could check his accuracy. Ravi Zacharias, um, if you don't listen to this guy, you should. Um, great theologian, great um, person that, that understands um, and challenges me. He wrote this. This is one of my favorite sayings of his. History is a vitally important feature and in many ways, has, in many ways may be the best coined word in the English, English language because history ultimately becomes his story. He goes on to write, history is the arena in which God unfolds his purpose and the heart of men and women is the focus in which he unfolds his work. Then he writes it this way, the only thing worse than nostalgia is amnesia. It's so true. We cannot forget We cannot come down with amnesia and say, we forgot what happened. We have to look at it as a history book. It's been well said that if we don't study history, then we're destined to repeat it. And we need the Bible as a history book. There's so many things that we can learn from that so we don't make the same mistakes. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote it this way. He said, whenever you pull down any fence, always be sure to find out why it was put up in the first place. We use the Bible because it's historical, but we also use it because it's relevant. It's true for us. We need it spiritually in our lives. Heard about a pastor, this is a pastor from years ago, that he had many books in his library, and this was before they could become digital. Um, He had many books, and he had used them over and over and over, and some of them he wanted to keep because he had written in them and underlined things, and so he's going to have some of his books rebound. So he sent them off to have a new spine and new binding put on them. One of the books that he sent off was the New Testament. 
And it was just the New Testament, it wasn't the whole Bible. But when he got it back, he noticed that along the spine of the book, there wasn't enough room to print the New Testament. So the person that did it just abbreviated it. And it now said TNT, which he thought was very fitting for the New Testament. For us, it's spiritual dynamite. And we should read it as such. Mark Twain, he said, most people are bothered by the passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. But the Scripture which troubles me the most is the Scripture I do understand. There was a man that wanted to know the will of God in his life. And he sat back and he prayed to God and he said, God... I'm going to open this book, and I want you to show me your will for my life. So he prayed about it. He opened his book, and he pointed to a verse. And the first verse he read, it said, And Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> thought, oh, no, that can't be right. He closed the book. He tried it again. He prayed to God, God, show me your will for my life. What should I do? And he opened it up. He pointed to a verse, and it said, And go and do likewise. I wait, third time's a charm, I gotta do this, right? He prayed to God, what's the will for my life? He opened it up, he pointed to a verse, and it said, and what you do, do quickly. (laughs) He thought he was doomed, right? How do we read this? How do we interpret this? And many questions have been asked about the Bible. Um, It was written, it was written for people of that day. The people then needed to hear it in their language, in their words, so it was written in Arabic. It was written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. But the question's been asked, and why do we have so many versions of it today? Well, here's the bottom line on this. The original text has not been changed. The original text is still the same as when it was written in. However, our languages have changed. We have more languages today, and our language continues to change today. So that's why we have 30 different translations in the English language And it has been translated over 2,000 times in different languages. And it's packed full of history and poetry and humor and prophecy and romance and letters and biographies and songs and journals and advice and laws and stories. Guys, if you can't find something exciting to read in this book, life-changing in this book, I would argue that you're simply not reading it. And don't just read the words on the page, but open it up to a point where you can let it change you and teach you and guide you. James Packer, he said, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the Bible. It's one of his best tools is to get you distracted so you don't understand it, so you don't read it, so you don't use it. And when Paul is writing to his his understudy, Timothy, He writes this, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Teaching in our church, in our home, in our schools, in our lives. Rebuking. Man, it's hard enough to do life, right? But we need a trusted source that can help us get through. Correcting. I need correction. Often. We need to use it. Training in righteousness, there's not a better place to get that training than from the Word of God. We use it because it's relevant to our current lives, and we can learn from it. Number four, let's keep going here. It's indestructible. It's indestructible. This is one of my favorite um, things to teach about. I love this. I've used these illustrations over and over through the years. So if you've heard them before, um, hang with me. It's good reminders. If you haven't, I love this stuff. King Manasseh, he was born in 697 B.C., 
He was a violent, ungodly, pagan man, and he was determined to destroy all the copies of the Pentateuch, which is the books of Moses, the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible. Um, He pronounced, he, he wanted to get rid of them because they pronounced the very sins that he was guilty of. So he went around and destroyed the books of Moses. He got all of them except one. There was one that was hidden in the walls of the temple which makes Mark 13, verse 31 true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It was written on animal skins, and and they used primitive writing tools, not computers, to write this book. Aristotle, let's think about this. Aristotle, his poems were written around 333 B.C., and yet the earliest copy that we have of any of them are dated A.D. 1100. And there are only five manuscripts in existence. Caesar composed the history of the Gallic Wars between 58 and 50 BC, and his manuscripts rest on nine or ten copies dating a thousand years after his death. But you know, there are over 20,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts in existence today, the original manuscripts, dating, some of them dating back to a hundred years within the life of Christ. In AD 303, the emperor Diocletian, um, he thought that he could destroy the church by destroying the Bible. So he had his soldiers go door to door and confiscate all the Bibles that they could, and he set them on fire. That same year, he had a coin that was made, and on that coin it said that the Christian religion has been destroyed, and that the worship of the gods have been restored. Well, he didn't get them all either. And within 10 years, a man by the name of Constantine came along and he embraced Christianity. And one of his acts as emperor was to commission someone to make 50 copies of scripture at the government's expense. And one of my favorites was Voltaire. I know some of you have heard this story. Voltaire, he was a French philosopher and he was very public against the Bible and against the teachings of Jesus And through what he owned, he owned many printing presses that would print um, his writings as well as writings of others. And he said this, he said, this is a quote from Voltaire, that the Bible was a hoax and that Christianity would be dead in his lifetime. Well, just like all of us are going to happen someday, Voltaire ended up dying. And after he died, the Geneva Bible Society came along and bought one of his printing presses. And they printed Bibles to be distributed worldwide. It's ironic, isn't it, that it happens that way and how God can continue to get his word out. It's indestructible. But I know this as well. It's stimulating. Number five, it's stimulating. It, it helps us and it moves us to be better people. Years ago, and this is, this is quite a few years ago, the state of Kentucky. Um, the state of Kentucky had a law that every classroom in its public schools had to post the Ten Commandments. I know some of you are like, that is a while ago, right? So every school in Kentucky, every public school had to put the Ten Commandments up somewhere in each classroom. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States came along and they ruled against Kentucky and they ordered them to take down all the copies of the Ten Commandments from the walls of the schools. And this is what they wrote about it. This is how they said it. They said, from the Supreme Court, they said, having the commandments on the wall may induce a student to read, meditate, and actually obey what is written therein. They were, they were convinced that the students might, they were scared that the students might actually obey the Ten Commandments. But I like this. Let's take it a step further. The Supreme Court also is saying 
that they recognize that the Word of God has the ability to transform the character of anyone who reads it. Thanks for the endorsement. David said it this way, Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What are you struggling with? What's going on in your life that you're trying to get through? What are you struggling on? Read the Bible. Put some of it to memory. And not just in your brain, but have it go to your heart. What happens when Scripture gets to your heart can be life-changing for you in a great way. It has caused the lives of others to change. Guys like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Chuck Colson, Lee Strobel. Guys that were completely against it. And they put it to the test and they studied it to the point where they said, we now believe, we are now motivated. It does, it motivates us. There was a lieutenant um, who went to his captain in the army and he said, Captain, I've tried to sell these soldiers that GI insurance, this life insurance that you want us to sell them, but no takers. I can't get them to do it. And the captain said, did you try and motivate them? Did you, did you get them to buy in? He goes, oh, I can't do it. And the captain said, can I give it a shot? He said, please be my guest. So the captain stands up and says, all right, soldiers, for $20 a month, you can buy $100,000 worth of life insurance policy so that if you die, your loved ones will receive $100,000. Who's in? Nobody raised their hand. Nobody wanted in on it. He said, maybe you don't understand. Let me explain it to you in a different way. If you pay the army $20 a month and you die, the army has to pay your loved ones $100,000. So when we go into battle, who do you think the army is going to put on the front line? Those who have bought the insurance or those that decided not to buy the insurance? And they all signed up. Psalm 42.1, it says, As a deer pants for water... So my soul longs for you. I think he's put something in us. There's something in us, in our hearts, that longs for and desires more than what we have in this life. And it's God. And this book is priceless. But yet there is a price to pay. If you don't read the book, it will cost you dearly. But if you do read it, it might cost you a little time. But the payout is amazing. And it's stimulating on so many different levels. It can cause you to do amazing things that you never believed you could do before. All right, let's go here. The last one, number six. It's true. It is true. It's a true book. It's been tested. John 16, 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will then guide us into all truth. I like the way George Eliot said it. He said, The Bible just doesn't read like a lie. It's true. And it's not up to me, it's not up to you, it's not up to us to sift through the Bible and try and find the errors or mistakes. It's not up to us to cut and paste the things we like and we don't like. If so, that would make us, the reader, the ultimate authority. But I'm not the ultimate authority. God is. In Revelation 22, verse 18, it says, If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book, a prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life. It's not up to me to decide if it's true or not true. It's also not up to me to defend it. Charles Spurgeon, famous quote from him, he said, The Bible is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose. It will defend itself. So either this book is true from the very first verse to the very last verse, or it's not. And if it is true, then I don't want to believe anything else. And if it's not true, 
then you know what? I think it's worth the risk. But I believe that it is. And I also believe it only takes a little bit of faith to get there. And there's too much evidence to discredit the Bible. In fact, my understanding is, I think it takes more to disbelieve the Bible than it does to believe in it. But whether you believe in it or not doesn't make it true. It's true with or without your faith. It's not up to you to make it true. It's true not because I say it is. It's not true because you say it is. It's true because God says it is. And this is why I love it, and this is why we use it for the foundation of our teaching. Because the Bible is courageous, it's historical, it's relevant, it's indestructible, it's stimulating, it's true, and it points us to Christ. It points us to a person, not a list of rules, not a list of things we need to know more of, and it's more than just a book of history. In John chapter 20, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, of all the things, and this, this list setting on me all week, it's more than just a list of what the Bible is, and we can try and make it sound um, great, and we can try and prove that it's true, but more than anything else, what I want you to hear is that it's a love story to you. And it's not some mushy, weird love story kind of thing. This is about the manliest thing you could ever come across. And it's from the creator of the universe writing something to you to prove how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. It's the greatest love story that's ever told because God loves us so much. He says, you're not trapped in your sin anymore. There is a way out. And it's through his son, Jesus, who has come to rescue you, to give you life. And that's the story that he is trying to tell us. I'd love for us to do this. Um, if you don't know who that is, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't read your Bible much, if you don't know much about it and you want to learn, come talk to me. Let's figure out how we can help you grow in that. If you do and you're on that path, then keep going. Keep learning about God by reading your Bible. But if you would, let's stand together. We're going to sing together as we prepare our hearts for a time to remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's sing out.